First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Holy Father, we thank you this morning that we have as your people the responsibility and the privilege to intercede for those in authority around the world. We pray first for our own president today. We thank you that he had the moral courage to do what was right, to put down a heinous crime. Thank you for the Marines in our church and all the military personnel in our country that have a moral entrustment given to them to defend what is right and true and, and uh, to put down that which is evil. God, we ask today for the true church that resides there in Syria. We know it is small, but we thank you for the born-again believers in that country. We pray that you would be with them, that you would sustain them and encourage them in these difficult times. Thank you that your word says that Syria will play a role in the coming of your son, that Damascus will be utterly destroyed before Jesus comes back from heaven. Thank you that you are in control in the affairs of men and nations. We pray for those who are in judiciary leadership today in the country of Turkey. We lift up Andrew and Noreen Brunson, who have served there as your missionaries for nearly a quarter of a century. And this morning, as they are in jail and face trial tomorrow, we pray your mercy upon them, that righteousness would prevail, that you would allow them to be able to be restored to their family, to their children, that you would be gracious to them. Thank you for those who serve in difficult places that you've raised up. And thank you for the mission conference this week, as people will pour into this place from across this country and around the world. We pray that you would allow us to be a blessing to them, that we might be encouraged by each other's faith. We ask you for the opportunity, even on Wednesday night, to reach out to people in our community. We pray that you would, through our invitation and our sensitivity to the Spirit, even in the next few days, that as we invite people to the Wednesday night service, that because of that, people would find Jesus as Lord. Father, I'm sure there's someone here who has not even invited the first person yet. But we pray that if they name the name of Christ, that they would be used of you in the next few days. Use me. Thank you for the person you allowed me to invite early this morning. Our Father, we pray for Dr. Lutzer as he will stand in this pulpit on Friday night and on Sunday morning. Thank you for his years of ministry and service at the Moody Church in Chicago. We pray that you would bless his preaching as well. Help me this morning. As I open your word, please come and give me the strength. Thank you that in weakness there is strength, that your grace is sufficient. And I ask that you would fill me and anoint me for all who will hear this message today and in the days to come. They will be strengthened through your word, and I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you take your Bibles this morning, please, and turn to the book of Revelation chapter 11. We've been working our way through the Revelation, and you can see today's message is entitled, A New World Order, because there is a new world order that is coming that the Lord Jesus will bring. I remember during the first Gulf War, 
I was a new pastor here, and my second Sunday, half the congregation left because we were all Marines, and I thought, this is not how it's supposed to happen. We're shrinking fast, but those men were going to defend our country, and uh, our president at the time, George H. Bush, said that he was going to crush that bully and butcher, Saddam Hussein, and that he had behind him 32 nations that were supporting his effort that had formed a new world order. But it really was not a new term with him. Woodrow Wilson, after the First World War, what was called the War to End All Wars, formed the League of Nations in order to establish a new world order. Then World War II came, and shortly after that, the United Nations was formed, And so now there is a push for a new world order through a global government. They believe that through a collective unity, they can address the problems of the world better and than any single nation can. Well, that's precisely what the Antichrist is going to attempt, a new world order through a one world government. But our passage reminds us today that the real new world order cannot be established until Jesus comes back. Now, we can give it a lot of titles and call it a lot of different things, but the new world order of the peoples of this world are nothing but the old disorder. They try and they try and they try again, but it never works. As C.S. Lewis used to say, no arrangement of bad eggs will make a good omelet. And how true that is. And after the evil empire, as our President Reagan would refer to the former Soviet states, after that fell, we thought things would be great that it would be a safer world. But unfortunately, it is more dangerous than it has ever been with more people who have their finger on the nuclear trigger than ever before. You say, Pastor, you're just a pessimist. No, I'm an optimist because I know the end of the story and I know what's going to happen. Revelation chapter 11, it sounds like you have found it. We want to begin in verse 15 where we left off last time. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened. And the Ark of the Covenant appeared in his temple. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. Now, you'll remember we are in the futuristic section of the book of Revelation. Chapter 1 speaks of things in the past, the things that were. Records that picture of the glorified Christ. Chapters 2 and 3 give us a picture of the things that are, of seven literal actual churches that are functioning. Then in chapter 4, you turn a corner. You come into that section where Jesus said, write about the after these things kinds of stuff. And that starts in chapter 4 and goes all the way through the end of the book. Now, I've told you that if you are going to make sense of Revelation, as you read it over and over and over again, you need to understand its structure, its architecture. 
because when you see how it fits together, it just makes so much sense. If you do a quick cursory reading, you might not pick it up, but after about the seventh or eighth reading from end to end, you see, wow, this book is absolutely incredible. This chart will just refresh your mind for a moment. We've seen that beginning in chapter six all the way into the second coming, there are three sets of seven judgments that come consecutively. First, there are the seal judgments, then there are the trumpet judgments, and then there are the bowl judgments. This seven-year period is called the time of Jacob's trouble in the Old Testament. It's divided into two halves, 1,260 days, 42 months, three and a half years. You'll see all of those designations, time, times, half a time. The first three and a half years when the Antichrist comes and signs a treaty after the church has been removed, Israel is protected. An event takes place right in the middle of the tribulation. Jesus refers to it. Daniel prophesies it. Paul elucidates on what will take place, as will John in the Revelation, an event known as the abomination of desolation that will take place in a rebuilt temple. And when that event takes place, Jesus said, watch out. The world is going to become much worse than man has ever conceived. The first half is tribulation. The second half is typically referred to as the great tribulation. Now, it is true on one occasion, the first half is called great tribulation. Well, if that's great tribulation, then the second half is great, great tribulation, all right? Just see that there's an event that takes place that changes everything. Now, for that event to take place, if you lived 100 years ago, you'd be scratching your head because as you read the Revelation and the prophets of the Old Testament, you would see that that would have to take place in Jerusalem amongst the Jewish people in a rebuilt temple. In 1895, the first statistics we have since about 70 AD, there was only 25,000 Jewish people living in all of Israel, scattered back, most of them living like nomads in tents, an unwelcomed group of people, a handful in the city of Jerusalem. But God did something in fulfillment of prophecy. Ezekiel said, God speaking, for I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own lands. Not by accident. God sovereignly has brought now nearly 7 million Jewish people back into the land of Israel. When the former Soviet Union collapsed, many Jews immediately left and they came to Israel. And now there's a spirit of anti-Semitism sweeping Western Europe. Jews are being mocked, laughed at, killed. And the sad thing is, is that supposedly most millennials don't even know there was a Holocaust as it came out this week. It was an awful time, the Holocaust, where six million Jewish people were exterminated. God has now replaced all those people. There's about 12, 12 and a half million Jews on the planet. And God, just as he said, is bringing the Jewish people back into the land. The prophet Ezekiel says that this will happen in the latter times. Two critical prophetic terms, last days, latter times, last days, began according to Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. Why? Because the Bible teaches the imminent return of Christ, that Jesus could come at any moment. Nothing prophetically has ever needed to happen for Jesus to come and catch up his church. 
Whereas the second coming that happens at the end of that seven-year period is a scheduled program. All kinds of things need to happen. Well, God says in the latter days, which Daniel, like Ezekiel, uses to refer to the very end of time before the second coming, God would gather the Jewish people. You are witnessing that. You are witnessing a prophecy that God wrote of centuries ago that when preachers like me who believe the Bible preached it 100 years ago, people laughed at them. And then God brought them into the land. They came to places like the United States during the Second World War, and we turned away boatloads of them. And where could they go? Most went back and were exterminated in the gas chambers. Some realizing that even America would not welcome the Jews, they went to Israel. And so God used 600,000 Jews with 100 million Arabs around them, and he allowed them to reestablish themselves and become a nation on May the 14th, 1948, the 70th anniversary. I'll be in Israel on that day when they celebrate it. It is a great day. You need Jews? for verse 1 to be fulfilled. Look at verse 1. Then there was given a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship it. How can you measure a temple that doesn't exist? Well, first you need Jewish people who would want it to exist. God's already given us that. The temple institute in the city of Jerusalem is comprised of Orthodox Jewish men who have reproduced all of the temple furniture, and they are planning to rebuild the temple. Now, remember, the first temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in 587 B.C., the one that Solomon built. Seventy years later, just as God said, how did God fulfill that future prophecy written in Jeremiah? Literally. He literally said, in 70 years, you'll come back. That's how he's going to fulfill all of the future prophecies. Literally. And so we live in a day where people have discounted Israel. They're spiritualizing the book of Revelation. They don't think that these things are important. They're very important. Every single of the 333 prophecies for the first coming were literally fulfilled. When God said Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, he meant that. When he said he would be pierced for our iniquities, he meant that. Every single prophecy was literally fulfilled as it will be for the second coming. Seventy years later, they come back under Zerubbabel. They build the second temple. Herod, of course, does a tremendous facelift on it, makes it one of the great seven wonders of the world, depending which list you're reading. But just as Jesus said, not one stone would stand upon another. And the place was totally obliterated. This is what the temple mount looked like in Jesus' day. On one side, you had the portico of Solomon. You read about that in Acts. And silver and gold I have not, but what I have, get up and walk right there, that place on the right side of your screen. On the opposite end was the fortress Antonia, the place where the army officers would be housed and when the Jews came in for the three required uh, festivals, they would fill the city with Roman soldiers, especially. They would be overloaded to keep peace in the land. And then in the middle, thereabouts, was the, the temple that was uh, rebuilt again by Zerubbabel. But in 70 AD, just as Jesus said, it was dismantled. Every single stone was torn apart. Now, if you go to the Temple Mount today, you'll see this. It's 37 acres. Uh, sometimes you'll read 35 acres, and they're describing the open property, discounting the buildings. 
but they have as many as 450,000 Muslims up on top of that 37-acre piece of property at some of their great festivals. On the left side, you can't see the dome, but it's the Al-Asqa Mosque. And then there in about the middle uh, is uh, what's called the Dome of the Rock. The Dome of the Rock is not a mosque, it's a monument, it's a shrine to Muhammad who supposedly got on his winged horse and flew into heaven. Now, understand, Jerusalem is mentioned over a thousand times in the Bible. Do you know how many times Jerusalem is mentioned in the Quran? That's right, a big zero. Not once. Yet, of course, the Muslims want to claim this property as their own. They don't want Jewish people even walking up there. They have a right to be up there. One, because God gave them the right, and the Israeli government gave them the right, but most Orthodox Jews especially won't walk up there because they see it as a defiled place. In either case, where is the temple going to be rebuilt? One theory, which I'll mention just because it's gained a lot of popularity, because Christians are sometimes suckers for sensationalism. We can be. And uh, the fellow who uh, proposed this theory said that the final temple, the third temple, will not be built on top of the Temple Mount, but he argues that the original temple was built outside the wall in the original city of David. David came in, conquered the Jebusites, and um, it was on the south wall was the original city of David. There are two cities of David in the Bible, Bethlehem and Jerusalem. City of David, Bethlehem, where David was born, but then the city of David that he conquered from the Jebusites. In either case, um, they think it's going to be built there. Who proposed that idea? A guy named Ernest Martin, who was with a group called the Worldwide Church of God. Armstrong, who started the Worldwide Church of God, denied the deity of Christ, denied the doctrine of the Trinity, denied salvation by grace alone. He orchestrated a worldwide cult of sorts, and his magazine was called The Plain Truth. He used to be able to find it in airports all across America. Interestingly, a fellow by the name of Bob Kanuke adopted the viewpoint of a cult because, again, it's sensational. Uh, you know, he's the same guy who said, well, the Protestant view of where Jesus died is wrong. The Catholic view of where Jesus has died, there's been two opinions. One is right, one is wrong. But he came up with a third opinion that no one else has seen in 2,000 years. He's the same fellow who said that he found the literal, actual anchor of the Apostle Paul when he shipwrecked there in the harbor of Malta. It sells books. But there's no scholarship to it. It was not there. But I mention it because so many of you have asked me about it. A second view, as you can see on this next slide, is that the original temple was where the Dome of the Rock is now placed. And many Jewish people in Israel believe that. Well, to build a new temple, the Dome of the Rock would have to be gone. Well, listen, God doesn't need our help. We don't have to create some false view and put the temple mount outside of the city. Remember, David conquered the Jebusites. Then on one occasion when there was a great plague, he bought the mount that we call today the temple mount. It was owned by a guy by the name of Aruna. 
And Chronicles tells us that the threshing floor that was an elevated place where you would thresh the wheat, uh, that that was the same place that Solomon built the very first temple. In either case, it would be World War III to take that dome off of there to put the temple. Another view held by a number of Jewish people uh, is that the actual temple was not where the Dome of the Rock was, but adjacent to it, uh, between the fortress Antonia and the Dome of the Rock. And there would be 150 feet between the two structures, and that that's where it was, and it's argued for many reasons. One is that lines up perfectly with the Eastern Gate. When Jesus came in on Palm Sunday, as we discussed last week, he came through the Eastern Gate. 70 AD, as God prophesied in Ezekiel, the gate was shut. It's buried under rubble, the original gates. The one you see visibly has been opened and closed a number of times, so closed for over 500 years because the Muslims know Messiah is supposed to come through the eastern gate. In either case, it lines up perfectly. If he came through the eastern gate, which the scripture says he will at his second coming, his feet will touch the Mount of Olives. In front of him is this north-south valley called the Kidron Valley. He's going to create another valley that will go east-west. And I'm sure he'll blow the doors of that eastern gate right open. And he's going to walk right through it. And there's a perfect alignment, not to mention Josephus, a first century historian. You have to take him for what he's worth and that it's not scripture But he argued that the Jewish people, when they took the red heifer, they would bring him to the top of the Mount of Olives, and then they would release him into the wilderness, which is on the other side of the Mount of Olives, and that the place they did it, they could look directly past the eastern gate at the temple. And that's why a number of Jewish people believe the temple should be there, not to mention that's where the water came from the aqueduct from Bethlehem. I don't know. I don't know. We would need to do archaeological studies up there to be able to say dogmatically, and that's not going to happen anytime soon. But this temple is going to be rebuilt. How do I know? Because God said it is going to be rebuilt, and it will be built probably right there where the Dome of the Spirits is today. So God is sovereign. He is in control. He knows what he is about. Then if you remember when we came to verse 3 to tighten the context just a little bit more, God said, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. So God predicts 144,000 Jews preaching the gospel plus two witnesses. Evangelicals are in agreement that one of these witnesses is Elijah, with the exception of those who are amillennial. They don't believe any of this future stuff. They think the only event that's left is the second coming. Jesus is not going to rule and reign on the earth. Uh, God's done with Israel. We're the new Israel. They spiritualize all of the scripture. But those who take the Bible seriously are in full agreement that one of those two witnesses will be Elijah. How do we know that? Because Jesus said Elijah will come again before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he was echoing the same truth that the prophet Malachi gave in the fourth chapter. I have a sermon, if you're interested, the second coming of Elijah. We talk about the second coming of Christ. Elijah is coming again. The other witness, most would say, is Moses. Why? Because the description of these two witnesses perfectly mimic the ministries of Elijah and Moses. In addition, if you remember, 
Jesus had a conversation on a place called the Mount of Transfiguration, and he was having a discussion on the second coming that would usher in the kingdom. And we read in Matthew 17, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. Now, hear me on this. I wouldn't spill blood or break fellowship if you think it's Elijah and Enoch, if you think it's Elijah and John the Baptist, and I think it's Elijah and Moses. We can debate that until Jesus comes back. But one thing we cannot debate, and that is what these men are going to do. We will see that um, the world will despise them and hate them. And eventually they will be killed and there will be great rejoicing across the planet. But that rejoicing three and a half days later will turn into great shock as God literally brings them back to life, their bodies that were unburied, and will take them to heaven. So understand where we're at. Seven seals. In the seventh seal is contained seven trumpets. In the seventh trumpet is contained the seven bowls. That's what you learn in the Revelation. The seven seals, you can only see one at a time. Unlike the trumpets, you can see all of them. And if you can see all of the trumpets, then you can see what's in the seventh trumpet, which is the seven bowls of wrath that ushers in the second coming of Jesus. So that's where we're at. And with each of these series of seven, there has always been a space of time. One through six seals, space of time, not literal time, but time in terms for the reader. And then the seventh seal happens. And so what God does in each of these parentheses is he shows you what's been going on during this time. In the middle of the tribulation period, when the abomination of desolation takes place right in the middle of the 70 years, the Bible teaches, then the seven trumpets start. Between the sixth and seventh trumpet, again, there's a space of time, so to speak, a parenthesis where God shows us what is happening, what is going on. Now, with that said, three dramatic events are underscored here in verses 15 through 19. If you want to jot down a few notes, first, there's an announcement of victory. There's an announcement of victory. Verse 15, then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. Now this verse seems out of order because this happens when Jesus comes again and we won't read about that, the second coming until the 19th chapter. But don't forget, this section of Scripture is being written, read not only by us, but by future saints, tribulation saints. They are living during the worst time in human history. And when the seventh trumpet is blown, it's like there's more, yes, there's more, but there's more than just wrath, Jesus is coming back. And it will be a time of really great encouragement to them. But it's a time of encouragement for us as well because all Scripture is inspired by God. God didn't write the book of Revelation just for those who will read it during the seven-year period. He wrote it for us as well so that we can learn from it. And so John's writing of the Messiah's sovereign rule on the earth would have been a great encouragement to a first-century reader. Why? Because this book is written in 95 A.D. It's a solid date. 
Domitian, the emperor, is the emperor, the world leader, so to speak. And we have written in a number of different rocks and documents that he gave himself the title, God the Lord and the Lord of the earth. That's why once a year, unless you bow down before Domitian and offered incense, you're either persecuted, killed, or exiled. Unless you said, Domitian is Lord, Caesar Curios, Caesar is Lord, then you would be hurt. The Christians who love Jesus would only say, Jesus Curios, Curios, Jesus is Lord. They would not say Caesar is Lord. They would only say Jesus is Lord. And so where's John? He's in exile. He's a political prisoner. And God in his sovereignty protected him. Why? So he could write the book of Revelation in that cave. I've been to that very cave in which John wrote. There's only one possible place there on the Isle of Patmos there in Turkey where it could have happened. Then the seventh angel sounded. There it is again, the seventh angel and that seventh trumpet, remember, is how many bowls? Seven that bring about the second coming. And so what you're going to see here in verses 11 to 15 is kind of a, a summary, it's kind of a schematic of things that are yet to come, and he's going to build off of this summary and unfold it for us. The seventh angel sounded, and what happened? There were loud voices in heaven. Do you remember what happened when the seventh seal was opened? Oh, man, when the seventh seal was open, the first trumpet blew, and there was 30 minutes of silence in heaven. But when this particular event takes place, no silence, only praises, loud voices. Some of your translations say great voices. And these great voices are distinguished a couple verses from now from another group of people who are praising God who are called the 24 elders. So who are these loud voices? Who are these great voices? Well, I don't have to wonder because the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And if you remember in chapter 5 and verse 11, they were already identified for us. Let me read it to you. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. And if you remember, they were saying... Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So around the throne are the four living creatures, myriads of angels, and these 24 elders. And they create this incredible voice, the voice of many angels, this loud voice that we're reading here in the 11th chapter, who are separated in just a moment from the 24 elders, from their voice. In 5.14, we read, and the elders also fell down in worship. And so here in chapter 11, when the seventh trumpet is sounded, there were loud voices in heaven, and they are described, notice, as myriads of angels, myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands we just read in Revelation 5.11. You remember this term? We read it in our study of Daniel. Let me read to you Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel 7 and verse 10, the Ancient of Days, who's the Ancient of Days? Anybody remember? Which member of the Trinity? The Father. That's right. The Ancient of Days is on his throne, and we're told around the throne is a river of fire that was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. 
The court sat and the books were open. Now, the term married is like the term tithe in Hebrew. Like in Greek, it is a mathematical term. Now, we say, well, I give a tithe, and, you know, you give $5 to the Lord. Well, a tithe of $5 would be a tithe if you made $50 that week, because a tenth of $50 is $5. So we use the term very, very loosely, but biblically, the word tithe literally means a tenth. Likewise, the term married is a mathematical term in Scripture. And so instead of just translating the term myriad, the King James and the ESV interpret it for you, but rightly so. They write in this passage in Daniel, in 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. And so, and then we read, and thousands of thousands. So there's millions and millions of angels that are surrounding the throne of God. Again, myriad is a mathematical term. It means 10,000. And 10,000 times 10,000 is 100 million. But the term myriad could also be used to describe just an incredible number because it was the largest digital number they had in Greek and Roman writings. A myriad. It was the biggest number they could conceive of to describe a large group. I don't know what we would use today. When I was a boy, it was a billion. Now we're talking about $21 trillion in debt, and we're headed for a disaster that unless we turn this ship around and stop spending money we haven't earned, there's going to be a collapse financially in our government, and not just our government. If America falls financially, the world will fall financially. And we think that we can spend money we haven't earned, and you cannot even our own government accounting office say that the debt that we have is unsustainable. Even the current debt, if we go up a couple of interest points, we are headed for a total disaster. So now we speak of trillions, but maybe a equivalent term today would be quadrillion. You say, how big is a quadrillion? I don't know. It's, it's, it's a big, big number. That, that's the thought behind this term myriad. Millions and millions of angels around the throne of God are creating this loud voice. So while we're talking about a new world order, please understand that the thought of a new world order from man's perspective is not new. It goes all the way back to the book of Genesis chapter 11. There's a fellow by the name of Nimrod, we studied it in our exposition of Genesis, who tried to create a political and religious unity. And he did it at a place where he built a tower up to heaven, and the place was called Babel in Hebrew. In Greek, it's called Babylon. There is a place that we're going to study, a political, religious unity that is mentioned first in the 14th chapter, but enumerated in two chapters of the Revelation called Babylon which is a political, religious, one world order. And so what you find in the book of Genesis in kernel form, by picture, by type, by illustration, is all these prefigurements of what God is going to do in the future. So there's one ark with three levels and one door because there's one God who 
is made up of Father, Son, and Spirit and one door to enter into the ark of salvation for Jesus is the only door. Abraham up there on top of Mount Moriah giving his uniquely only begotten son. The term monogene, only begotten, is applied only to two people in Scripture, Isaac and Jesus. Isaac is the only begotten, and that he too is a miracle baby. Jesus is a super miracle baby without a human father. And where does he offer Isaac? Up there on the Temple Mount called Mount Moriah. That's Mount Moriah where the temple was. Says the mountains of Moriah and the very peak of the mountains of Moriah. If you could take some GPS tool and say, what is the highest point of the mount, mountains of Moriah? It's a place today we call Golgotha. Jesus at the peak of the mountain, so to speak. Bled on a cross. It's all by type, all by picture. Nimrod is a picture of the coming Antichrist and this one world political ruler in this one world religion. Now understand, what Satan is going to do in the future, he has wanted to do since he fell and rebelled against God. He has wanted the world to worship him. And because he said, I am, I will, I will, I will, I will, five times over, God threw him out of heaven. We'll study that a little bit later in the Revelation. He and a third of all the angels rebelled with him, and God threw them out of heaven. But understand, when Adam rebelled against God, he lost the plan that God had for him. God wanted Adam to rule and have dominion over the world. He lost the farm, so to speak. And so three times in the book of John, Satan is called the ruler of this world. Paul calls him the God, small g, of this world, of this age. Look at Luke 4. Just listen to it. If you remember during the temptation of Christ, Jesus is brought to the pinnacle of the temple, which was the southwest corner. And he led him up there and he showed him all the kingdoms of this world in a moment of time. The devil said to him, I will give you all this domain in its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I will give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be yours. That was a legitimate offer. Jesus never disputes it. But he refuses to bypass obtaining the kingdom except by going through the cross. But Satan has been given dominion. And so what has been happening in the Revelation beginning in the fifth chapter is the father hands the son that seven-sealed scroll. It's the title deed to the earth. He's broken the seven seals. And then the trumpets sound. And as the trumpets sound, God says here in verse 15, or he says, then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Now, some of your English translations, because it reads a little bit better, certainly sings better in the Messiah. This is one of those verses sung in the Messiah. They say, kingdoms, kingdoms. That's not the way the Greek text reads. The New American Standard, with great precision, says, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Why? Because the Antichrist is going to create a one-world kingdom, so to speak, a unified worldwide government, and Jesus is going to come and take his place and rule over the world. The kingdom of this world, a hundred million plus angels 
probably much more than that are announcing the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Now, you see that word, Lord, the kingdom of our Lord, who's that a reference to? The Father. The kingdom of our Father, you can see, you can paraphrase it, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of God the Father in his anointed one, his Messiah, his Christ. Two members of the Godhead are here in view. The Holy Spirit always takes the back point and he shines the light on Jesus. But we'll see all three members of the Trinity before we're done at work in this coming kingdom. But here, the kingdom of the Lord. Lord, by the way, do you know that that is a title that is given in the Revelation? Kurios, not just to the Father, but to the Son. Why is that? Because to see the Father is to see the Son. They are equal. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Now, when that is said with loud voices, it's bad news for the unbelievers of this world. It is the best news for those who know the living God. And we'll see, beginning in chapter 12, that even though Satan is fighting a losing battle, he will not relinquish control. He will fight to the very end. And it seems like he is winning, but Jesus is going to crush his kingdom and dismantle it. Remember what King David wrote in Psalm 2? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against Yahweh, and his anointed, his Messiah. The word Messiah, Messiah, Christos, Christ, means anointed one. The kings of the world, what do they do? They take their stand against who? Against God the Father and against God the Son, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. By the way... Peter in Acts 2 uses this, uh, excuse me, Acts chapter 4 uses this same verse as an illustration of Pilate, of the rebellious people even in his day, the rebellious Gentile people of this world who are against God. And so in Psalm 2, 9, we read, you shall break them with a rod of iron, you shall shatter them with earthenware. When does that happen? When Jesus comes back. He is going to crush the kingdom of this world, and he is going to rule. Now, understand this term, the kingdom of God. It's a very important term as we study the revelation. People all the time want to study revelation, but they don't want to think. I mean, I'm just being honest with you as a pastor. They can't even say the book's title. They, oh, I'm so glad you're studying revelations, pastor. It's not revelations. It's revelation. It's one revelation. There's no such thing as the book of revelations. It's the book of Revelation. But many times we don't want to think and mine it out. This is hard work. But if you will stick with me, it will be an incredible blessing to you when you see what is going to happen. Understand this term, the kingdom of God. It's used in three principal ways in Scripture. On the one hand, it is used to describe God's sovereign rule over the nations of the world. Yes, there's coming a day when the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our God and of His Christ. Does that mean God's not in control? He is in absolute control today. He is reigning sovereignly over this world. Nothing escapes Him by accident. There's never an emergency meeting of the Holy Trinity. God is on his throne. Listen to what the psalmist says. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. 
Likewise, in Psalm 145, David writes, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. Nebuchadnezzar, when he finally gets saved and he begins to see straight, he says of the Lord, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. God is over all that is happening in this world today. That's one way the term the kingdom of God is used in Scripture. But it's also used not just of God's sovereign control over the world, but it's also used in a spiritual way. And so the kingdom of God, Jesus told Pilate that his kingdom was not of this world. And of course, Jesus told Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You have two kinds of sight, physical and spiritual. We're blinded through sin to be able to see with spiritual eyes, but when we're born again, we can see the kingdom of God. We can begin to perceive things that we didn't perceive before. Some of you from day one don't have a clue about what I'm talking about in Revelation because you haven't been born again. You don't have a helper. Some of you are brand new Christians. You say, this is complicated. It is. But you wanted me to preach the book of Revelation, so I'm preaching it. So hang in with me and don't worry about it if you're a new Christian. Why? Because learning the Bible is like learning math. Some people you teach their numbers. Some you teach addition. Some multiplication. Some calculus and everything between those two points. And it will build over the years in your knowledge and your appreciation and understanding of all that God is doing here will just grow and deepen. You cannot see God's kingdom, but neither, Jesus said, can you enter the kingdom unless you are born again. Why? Because this is a spiritual kingdom. But there's a third usage to the term kingdom of God in Scripture, not just of God's sovereign rule over the nations, not just those who are members of the kingdom, so that Jesus can say the kingdom of God is within you, but also a literal, actual, physical kingdom. Most people don't realize it, but what we typically call the Lord's Prayer, we pray that every time. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. Has that ever been answered? No. It's not yet fully been answered, but it is going to be answered when the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of our God and of His Christ. The kingdom of God will literally come to the earth. This is what God said over and over and over again in the Old Testament. God said to David that one of your descendants will sit on the throne forever. Hasn't been fulfilled. Messiah came, a baby will be born to us. A child will be given to us. The baby's name will be called Mighty God. We saw that fulfilled in the first coming. And the governments will rest upon his shoulders. Hadn't happened yet. But it's going to happen when Jesus comes back at the end of this seven-year period. The fact that there is a coming kingdom is taught in the Old Testament. The length of the kingdom is given in the New Testament. Listen to this. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. That's the length of the kingdom. Jesus is still king of kings. He is still Lord of lords. But someday when he comes back, it's going to be fully 
realize that's the announcement. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. He has given it to us here in schematic form. Then he's going to introduce us to seven personages to follow in the next two chapters. And then we're going to see the reality of that seventh trumpet in the seven bowls that will usher Jesus back to the earth. All right, that's the announcement. And that spills over to the acclamation of praise. There's an acclamation of praise. We read now in verse 16, and the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God. Now, remember the 24 elders? Hold your finger here and go back to Revelation 4.1. I know there's some slides, but it will be helpful to you if you literally turn back. If you don't bring a Bible, there's no wonder you can't understand what I'm doing. (laughs) Without a Bible in your hands, you'll get 50% less out of any sermon. And I see some of you without a Bible. Bring a Bible. If you don't have one, come see me. We'll get you a Bible. Revelation 4, verse 1. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. So there's this open door in heaven, which we saw was the rapture of the church. Revelation 2 and 3 concerns seven churches. After these things, after the church age, the door is opened and the church is caught up into heaven and they're never mentioned again until they come back with Jesus in the 19th chapter. And of course, God is fulfilling a promise that he made. Remember, if you turn back another page or it's across the page in my Bible to Revelation 3.10, Revelation 3.10, Jesus said to the church at Philadelphia, because you have kept the word of my perseverance a fruit that you are genuine born-again believers, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. There's an hour of testing that is going to come upon the whole world. Question, has there ever been in the history of man an hour of testing that has come all the way across planet earth? Never. But Jesus said it's going to happen. God is going to literally fulfill this prophecy. And he says that I will keep you from, I will take you out from, some of your English Bibles say. He does not say, I will keep you through this hour of testing. He doesn't say, I will keep you in the midst of this hour of testing. He could have used two different pronouns inspired by the Spirit of God if he had intended that. But that's not what he says. I will take you out of this hour of testing, which, by the way, would be totally meaningless to the church at Philadelphia because all those members have been dead for 2,000 plus years. But this is not simply what he says to the church at Philadelphia. He says, this is what the Spirit says to the church is. Not just the church in Philadelphia, but the church that meets here in Buford, South Carolina this morning. Again, after these things, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. Now look at verse four of chapter four. Around the throne were 24 thrones and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and with golden crowns on their heads. By the way, there are three visions of the throne room in the Bible, in the Revelation, in Isaiah, and in Daniel. The throne room um, visions given by to Isaiah and Daniel are identical. In fact, they're identical to John with one exception. There's no 24 elders in the Revelation. Everything else is there. 
but not the 24 elders. Why? Number one, the church didn't exist in Daniel or Isaiah's day. I will build my church. When was the church born? On the day of Pentecost. And he has taken the church up into heaven through that open door. And now the 24 elders are there. Now, if you remember, this was the first time we were introduced to the 24 elders. These are not 24 angels. That's how some who try to say the church has replaced Israel, God's done with the Jew. And by the way, that is becoming so popular, and it's planting a spirit of antagonism against Israel. It really is. These teachers, who I think are well-meaning, but whether they know it or not, the support that has come to Israel traditionally from Bible-believing Christians is beginning to diminish. And that's sad to me, but I know ultimately all the nations of the world. Why does our government stand for Israel? Because of the evangelicals who are there saying, stand for Israel. I was there with a hundred pastors in the East Room of the White House, and we said to George Bush, number two, stand with Israel. That number is shrinking. It is diminishing. And we're beginning to lose our footing. I thank God that our current president appears to stand for Israel. I hope he will stay there and he will not vacillate. These are not 24 angels. Angels are ministering spirits sent out to render service to those who will inherit salvation. Angels don't sit on thrones. God's church does. If we rule, live for him, we will reign with him, Paul tells us. And so these are 24 Presbyteros. We got our word Presbyterian. I, I heard true story about this Presbyterian lady who is speaking to her 10 and 11 year old children on the book of Revelation. And she said right here in Revelation 4, 24 elders. It's the Greek word Presbyteros. We get our word Presbyterian from that. Well, she taught Revelation that day and the little girl goes home with her mom and mom says, well, honey, what did you learn in church today? Well, I learned there'd only be 24 Presbyterians in heaven. <laughs> well, I'm not sure there'll be that many, but in either case, <laughs> now that I've alienated all the Presbyterians, uh, listen, these are not angels. These, this is the garment of the church. They have white garments on, as Jesus encouraged the church at Laodicea to get from him. They have crowns on their head because God rewards us with crowns, and we sit on thrones. And we saw earlier in our study that the number 24 was a representative number, as this slide shows. For instance, in 1 Chronicles 24, the 24 officers of the sanctuary represented 24 divisions of Levitical priests. Or in 1 Chronicles 25, the 24 division uh, of the singers in the temple represented 24 mass choirs. And so it's a representative number. And here the 24 elders represent the body of Christ that is not destined for wrath, but that has been caught up into heaven. This is not Israel. This is not angel. Israel. Some say, well, this must be Israel. These are, these are 24 Jewish people who are representative of the Jews. No, it's not Israel. Israel, for the most part, is unbelief. The function of the tribulation is to bring Israel to faith. And God is going to pull that off. Now, look at this hymn of worship that they sing, verse 17. We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, 
because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. Notice they praise God for three realities that we should pray God for. Number one, he's supreme. He's called the Almighty. By the way, do you know who else is called the Almighty in Scripture? The one who holds all things in his hand, which is what the word means. Jesus is called the Almighty. God the Father is called the Almighty, and Yeshua is called the Almighty. We read that in Revelation 1.8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. How can God the Father and God the Son both be called the Almighty? Because they are equal. I and the Father are one. To see me is to see the Father. And the Scripture designates Jesus in Revelation 1.8 as the one who is and who was and who is to come. By the way, that same description is given of the Father in Revelation 4.8. Holy, holy, Lord God the Almighty who is... Who, uh, who was, who is, and who is to come. Same designation given equally to the Father and given equally to the Son. And so here in 1117, we give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were. Please notice, it's a little different. It does not say who was and who is and who is to come, but now it simply says who are and who were. Why? Because he's come back. That's what he's picturing for us. The return of Jesus from heaven where the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God. Now he's going to pause and he's going to show us how it happens and the chapters that will follow. Listen, you say, well, wait a minute. This appears to be the father in this verse. We give thanks, O Lord God, the almighty. Who's coming back? The father or the son? Both are. Listen, you can't cut up the members of the Godhead. On the one hand, the scripture says that uh, God so loved the world, he gave. Well, God the Father didn't die on a cross. His son did. I heard Phil Donahue years ago arguing with Jerry Falwell on national TV. He said, well, if God the Father really loved the world, why didn't he get out of heaven and die on a cross? He just gave his son. Because the members of the Godhead are so inseparable that Paul can say God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is a demonstration of the Father's love. Why? Because the members of the Godhead are inseparable. For God to give of his son was to give of himself. For Jesus to come back is for the Father, and we will see as well for the Spirit to come back. He reigns supreme, but notice he judges righteously. Verse 18, and the nations were enraged with your, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged. Again, I want you to see this. The nations are enraged. What are they so mad about? What are they so angry about? Certainly God's been good to them, has he not? Yes, even to the pagans, utter idolaters at Lystra, Paul could say that God did not leave you without witness and that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, your father who's in heaven causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. 
Listen, God has shown his goodness to us and the supreme demonstration of that goodness is when he made a provision for our sin. And the only reason he hasn't come back yet is not because the Lord is slow about his promise, but he's not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And so in Psalm 2, the psalmist King David writes, why are the nations in an uproar? And the people's devising a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand. And the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. You see, the world hates God. And by extension, they often hate us. Why? Because we have moral absolutes. They think we are narrow-minded when we say it's not a woman's right to choose to exterminate a baby in her womb. And it's not us for us to say that you can change your sexual identity. We saw this week in the confirmation hearing, the great senator from the state of New Jersey asking a man who I'm not sure if he's born again or not, but I know he has moral standards applying for secretary of state. And it's interesting because at least six of our president's uh, not board members, but cabinet members are born again believers. Some think more, but I know at least six, not to mention our vice president is born again. Maybe this guy isn't. So the Senator Booker quotes the potential secretary of state. I'm not sure what this has to be do with being Secretary of State. You said, and he quotes him, that homosexuality is a perversion. You believe homosexuality is a perversion? Mike Pompey says, look, I will treat everyone, whatever they are, justly and fairly under the law. That's not my question. Do you believe homosexuality is a perversion? That's what you said Mr. Pompey, what say you now? Someone asked me, what would you say, Pastor? I would have come back to Corey and I would have said, Sir, do you believe it's a perversion for a human to have an intimate relationship with an animal? The Bible calls it bestiality. My guess is, of course, it's a perversion. Why is it a perversion? Why is it a perversion for a man to have ten wives? If he wants 10, why is it a perversion for a man to have a relationship with his dog if he wants to? Because God Almighty says it's a perversion. But you see, they hate our moral absolutes. They think we're narrow-minded. They think we're short-sighted. The nations are in an uproar. Let us tear God's fetters apart. Let us live the way we want to live. The truth of the matter is the nations are going to see someday how wrong they are. And here we read, the nations were enraged and your wrath came and the time came for the dead to be judged. We saw last week in verses 9 and 10, if you remember, rejoicing, celebration, people exchanging gifts because God's two men who preached the gospel are dead there in the streets of Jerusalem for three and a half days. But then they go from great celebration to total shock when God brings them back to life and carries them up into heaven. 
Well, now Christ is coming back and the nations are enraged and you would think they would wake up and say, look, Jesus is Lord, we got to get right. What do they do? They gather together and they plan a war against the Messiah. We'll study it. It's called the Battle of the Armageddon. Listen, God's wrath is predictable. It's never whimsical. He doesn't fly off the handle. It is always, always, always a response to his hatred for sin. But he burned his wrath out in a substitute if men would come to Jesus. They praise him because he reigns. They praise him because he judges righteously. Notice also, they praise him because he rewards graciously. Again in verse 18, and the nations were enraged and your wrath came and the time came for the dead to be judged and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, the small and the great. Remember, we're going to see there are a number of resurrections in what we call the first resurrection. There's the first death, there's the second death. Does the first death take place all at once? No, it takes place over the course of time where people die each day like my neighbor did yesterday. People die over the course of time. But the second death, in a moment's time, when all of the unbelieving losses we'll see will be cast into the lake of hell. Even so, the first resurrection, you could call the first resurrection program, it doesn't happen all at once. It happens in a number of stages. And at the end of the seven years, after the church has been raptured, all the Old Testament saints will be raised. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Daniel, Ezekiel, Malachi, they're all come out of the grave. And it's time now for them to be rewarded. He's referring here to the Old Testament saints. Look, every time, as we'll see, you see the word saint. Don't think church, because there's three usages in the New Testament. Old Testament saints, church saints, and coming future tribulation saints. So the Old Testament saints are raised. We've already been judged. When will we be judged? The moment you are translated from earth up into heaven, as a Christian, you will experience a judgment, not for sin. That's been settled. So the scripture can say you've passed out of judgment into life. He that believes in him is not judged, but there is the judgment seat of Christ. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and God will evaluate you not over your sin, but over your service. He's going to see how faithfully you served his local church. And some of us come and we criticize year after year after year. All we can do is find out what's wrong with the church. And if it's not this church, it's the church we came from and the one before. And God will look at your service and he'll see if you love the things that he loved. And some of us will have deep regrets at the judgment seat of Christ when we see how foolishly we invested our lives. But this is the time of resurrection for Old Testament saints where they will be rewarded. And notice, God is bringing a reward to bless those who are believers in him. But it also indicates that there is coming a time to destroy those who destroy the earth. Now, by destroy, the Bible does not mean annihilationism. And unfortunately, the doctrine of eternal retribution, which we'll study in the 14th chapter and again in the 20th chapter, has taken a back row seat in evangelicalism because we don't want to be offensive and to drag out the doctrine of eternal wrath. But it's real. Hell is forever. It is dateless, timeless, endless, measureless. 
And when a man has been there a hundred billion years, he won't have one less second to spend there. But people in our day, because we live in a day of the seeker-sensitive church, where you got churches like Willow Creek, who still let a guy, Rob Bell, who denies eternal retribution, preach in the church and they give him a standing ovation. Why? Because they're so ignorant of the scriptures. Why? Because the scriptures have not been taught. And so they take verses, evangelicals in our day, like this, those who destroy the earth. You know what they talk about? Not eternal retribution, but those who harm the environment. Look what I got just a few weeks ago. I took a picture of it with my camera. It didn't come out all that well. I get all kinds of free books because they want me to buy material. And this book that they wanted you to use in your adult Sunday school classes was called Creation Care. On the cover, it says, An Introduction for Busy Pastors, Evangelicals, and Scientists United to Protect the Creation. And of course, in it, they have a curriculum and they suggest to me in the cover letter as a pastor that I should preach a, a series of messages on creation care, that I should uh, have a statement of creation of our care for it in the church bylaws. They suggest that we as a church do an energy audit, that we eliminate all the paper bulletins that you get every week, that we initiate a recycling program, that every bulb is an LED bulb, and that you are given a bag with the church logo on it to go to the shopping store so you don't need to use the plastic bags. And they say, this is all very, very important. So we got evangelicals today talking about protecting the earth and planting trees when we should be preaching the gospel. And so what this is in a reference to, those who destroy the earth, he's not talking about those who pollute the earth. And by the way, I, I, don't, I hate pollution. I don't litter. I don't like to litter. When we go to the beach, I tell my kids we're going to leave it cleaner than we found it. And I don't dump my oil in the marsh, all right? So I'm not against destroying the environment. Please understand. But this has nothing to do with polluting the earth. These people are being judged not because they wouldn't recycle, but because they wouldn't repent and get their lives right with the Lord, which brings us finally to the assurance of God's faithfulness. See, you should come to the 11 o'clock service. It's longer. Some of you are looking at your watches, but you'll get more. Verse 19, and the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened. And the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. So as John measures both the temple and the worshipers in the temple, the scripture tells us that much like on Sinai, there's some noise, some lightning, some sounds, some peals of thunder. It's incredible what's happening. And we're, we're told here that the Ark of the Covenant appeared in his temple. What temple? The temple that's in heaven. You say there's a temple in heaven. Yes, there is. Do you remember what we studied in the book of Hebrews a long time ago, Hebrews 8? The earthly tabernacle was but, the Bible says, a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for see, he says, that you shall make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. The true tabernacle is in heaven. The one that was on earth was just a pattern. Yes, Cecil D. DeMille had Moses coming down with two sets of stone tablets under his arms, but he also had a set of blueprints. 
God gave him some specific specifications as to how the tabernacle, which would later become the temple, would be built. Why? Because the one on earth was a copy of the one that was in heaven. People sometimes say, do we know where the Ark of the Covenant is? I don't know where the one that was on earth is, but I can tell you where the one in heaven is. And why was the Ark important? Because it was a constant reminder to the Jews, among other things, that God is faithful, that he will keep his promises. And so in Numbers, they set out from the Mount of the Lord three days journey with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord journeying in front of them for three days to seek out a resting place. And it was a constant reminder that God would be faithful. He would care for his people. He would keep all of his promises. And you read that with this in mind. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened. Over and over in the Revelation, things are opened. A door is opened to let the saints in. Seals are opened to let the judgments out. The abyss is opened to let the demons loose. And here, a door is opened once again in the temple of God. God is seen because God is showing his faithfulness. And those living in this future time who will read this will take great comfort in the symbol of the ark that's in heaven. Now, how are we going to apply this? Let me suggest three applications as we close. Number one, the tabernacle in heaven reminds us that God is faithful to all of his promises. Now, there are a number of passages that sometimes Christians know, but not always in their context. Like a lot of Christians have Psalm 23 memorized, but Psalm 23 in its context is a trilogy of Psalms. Psalm 22 is the crucifixion. Psalm 23 is not the shepherd's, uh, is, deals with the care of the Lord, the shepherd's care. So you have the, the Savior's cross in the 22nd chapter. You have the shepherd's care in the 23rd chapter. But in the 24th chapter, you have the Savior's crown. It's a trilogy. They're beautiful to read together as the Jews did. In 1 Corinthians 13, a lot of you have the love chapter memorized, but it's in the context of spiritual gifts, that we are to exercise our spiritual gifts in love. But then most of us have at least the end verses of chapter 8 memorized. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, but the context is illustrated with chapters 9, 10, and 11, that God loved Israel with an everlasting love, and he has not forsaken them. Do you remember what Gabriel said to Mary? And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Then Gabriel gave Mary a promise, and he, Jesus, will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. That didn't happen at the first coming. But it is going to happen when Jesus comes to rule and reign. Why? Because God keeps all of his promises. Second, we learn that God is in charge of this world. He is in charge of everything. If you remember in Revelation 6, the world is coming in tune. They recognize, where is this wrath coming from? Where are these seals dropping from? And they say this, the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said in the mountains and in the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. They recognize the judgments that are coming are from God Almighty, specifically from the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the end of the tribulation. We just read it five times over. The kingdoms or the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. What does that tell me? It tells me that the rulers of this earth who are kicking against God's sovereign rule 
are going to fall prostrate in obedience to his rule. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord before they are forever removed from God's eternal kingdom. What does this do for me as a pastor, as a Christian? It gives me encouragement because I look around and this world is a mess. And the evil of our world just seems to be growing and multiplying. But I know that God is on his throne, that he is in control, that the one who put this thing into existence is going to end it perfectly under his timetable. And if you're not ready for his coming, you need to be ready because it could happen sooner than many of us realize. Now, our Father, we thank you for your word today, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Thank you for its encouragement. You've given us the first day of the week, not for our own pleasure, but for your pleasure. Thank you for these who have come on this Lord's day, who are here because they want to be here. They want to learn the Word of God. Help us to gather, not just to gather information, but to take the truths that we are learning and to apply them to the everyday events of our life. I pray today for someone who's here who's never received Jesus, who are uncertain that if he were to come today and rapture the church, whether they would go through that open door in heaven. Help them, Father, to come to Jesus who died, who bled in our place, to call upon the resurrected Lord in faith, to trust him and him alone for their salvation. Help someone today to say, Father, Lord Jesus, save me. And we'll give you all the honor and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.